0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I got to sing with the gospel choir this morning. (laughs) I just wanted my mom to be able to hear that, that I sang in a choir. Two days ago, our planet experienced the largest jolt of energy it has felt since 1964. An 8.9 earthquake that sent a wall of water into Japan. Thousands have died. Millions of people's lives have been changed forever. And our marker for this morning is a river to carry. And our text takes us to a deadly river. And our theme is about how God meets us in the circumstances of our lives, even the most disorienting circumstances. I don't know about you, but I'm having trouble believing in coincidence. As this text and that title and that theme were chosen months ago. There are some nights when a preacher goes to bed on a Saturday and is not sure whether or not the Lord has a word to say to his congregation. For me... Last Saturday night was not one of those nights. And the question this morning is, how do you interpret the circumstances of your life? What meaning will you attach to them? What sense will you choose to make of them? I mean, today we have a shared experience. As we watch the news, it's devastating. It's a shared experience that is making our heads Spin that's making our hearts dissolve as we pray for Japan and North Africa and the Middle East. After 9-11, Tony Blair came to New York City to do a memorial service for British citizens that had perished in the Twin Towers. And at that service... He opened a book and he read from its final sentences. The book was written by Thornton Wilder, an American playwright and novelist, it's a work of fiction called The Bridge of San Luis Ray. The book is about a, a man who is a religious person, uh, Brother Unipero is his name, and, and he's on a quest to find an interpretation, to find meaning in the face of disaster. The opening sentences of the book take us to a ravine and a bridge that was famous, and it breaks and sends five of its passengers to their death in the river below. For Brother Unipero, this is... A unique opportunity, because he has suspected all along that people get basically what they deserve to get. And, and, and that because these five people have no relation to one another, and it's kind of a controlled environment, he brings a scientific enlightenment mentality to it. I can do a study now on these five lives and find out why they died. And that's the story of the book. Brother Unipro's investigation of these five lives. Looking for meaning. Thornton Wilder, the author of this work of fiction, had a very real quest in his life. Thornton Wilder was raised in a Christian home. He was educated in the China Inland Mission boarding school, actually, for several years in China. But when he was born, see, he was a twin. He had a twin brother who lived one hour, whose name would have been Theophilus. Wilder's nephew tells us that Thornton Wilder spent the rest of his life haunted by that shadow life that never lived. He writes about it in other books. There are always twins in his stories. See, he, 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 he has to find out how, how to make sense of the life that he's given that somebody else wasn't, wasn't given. And, and of the circumstances of his life. That's, that's our struggle, too. It's not only our struggle this morning, as we read horrible news, it's our constant struggle through life. Someone this week asked me what I would say to a father, a Christian father, whose child had a skiing accident and is permanently injured. Maybe you're not a father, maybe you're a high school student. And um, all your life you thought you'd be going to a certain college. And, and there's no reason why you shouldn't. And yet, in a few weeks, you could get this letter that says you can't. And you have to make sense of that. You know you're a good enough student. You know you have every reason to be studying at this college. But someone has said you can't. And maybe you were married And and, and your marriage just came to an end. And that's so surprising to you. Because to you, there seems to be no one more committed to marriage than, than you are. And there was no one more committed to your spouse than you were. How do you make sense of it? Maybe late in life, you've watched companion after companion and the most important of all partners just go away. And you don't know how to live a day. You don't know what life is without these people in your life. These circumstances call us to make sense, and we wrestle with it. Well, our text this morning is the beginning of the book of Exodus. Exodus, as you know, is the second book of the Bible. And it begins with a strange river story. It's a story about a river that begs for interpretation. In it's very being the Nile river was known since ancient days to be kind of a paradox to be ambiguous. The Nile river was a river that suggested death. Isis's tears they thought as she mourns the death of her husband every year flood its banks. And as the Nile River would overflow its banks, if it overflowed too far, it would sweep with it devastation. Towns and huts, families and lives into its dark depths. It was a river that signified death in Egypt. But it was also a river that meant nothing less than life itself. Because all of the population of Egypt is huddled around uh, the Nile River as it makes its way uh, to the Mediterranean Sea and and the Delta. And if if the Nile does not overflow its banks every year in the appropriate way, it will not flood the basins that bring the fertilizer and the irrigation to the crops that bring life. So Herodotus said Egypt is the gift of the Nile. And that's the way it's it's been uh, until 1970 in the Aswan uh, Dam. But you see, it was a mystery to the Egyptians. They never knew it was a a mysterious river. It flew, it flowed from the south to the north, which was a puzzle to them. And they never knew the source of its flooding. They couldn't have understood that it was on the plains of Ethiopia that tropical rains would fall every year and flood its banks. So they had to interpret it. Would it be death? Would it be life? What does this river mean? And it is here that the story of redemption begins. God takes his people to a, a river that forces their interpretation. There are, interestingly enough, two interpretations that are given in our text. They bookend the story. They are both the interpretations of Egyptians, not Hebrews, they'll give their opinions as to what's going on in the circumstances of their lives, but the story itself is rather bare, as Hebrew narratives often are. It does not give us a lot of help. What does this strange and tragic moment mean in the life of these people? See, I think the writer wants you to bring your interpretation to it. And see, I think God wants you and me to learn how to... Because of this text, interpret the circumstances of our lives. So let's open up to Exodus chapter one. Uh, you find on page 43 of the pew Bible. Our text actually is the last verse of Exodus 1:22, down through the 10th verse of chapter two. Exodus 1:22 to chapter 2:10. And if you're able, Abel, would you stand and let's read God's word aloud, and as we do, ask the Holy Spirit to bring its interpretation. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying. She took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. The heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. It's really a strange story. Uh, It has as many twists and turns as any river I've ever known. It's it's a story of people living through tragedy. Let me just try to summarize it to you. It begins with a man and a woman who get married. Now, we know these people and their names. We get that in chapter 6 a little bit later on. Moses' mother is Yaqabed, and Moses' father is Amam. But it's not important for us to know the names right now. In fact, it's better if these characters are kind of generic to us. A man and a woman get married. See how we're being invited into the story? See how we're drawn in? This could be my marriage. This could represent all the hopes and the dreams that I bring to any great event in my life. And so a man and a woman get married, and yet this marriage exists under a cloud, and There's an edict in the land. There's an oppressive pharaoh who has issued this command that all of the Hebrew boys should be cast into the Nile River and destroyed. We're not told about all the many grieving families that are suffering at this time, but the, the camera angle goes tight right in on one man and one woman, and they have a baby, and it's a son. It's too early, and it's the wrong gender and she, Jacobed, hides this baby in her home for three months, which is about as long as you can hide a baby. I don't think my kids would have been quiet even that long. But after three months, there's a kind of a pressure because, you know, you couldn't keep it away from the prying Egyptian eyes that seek to enforce the edict. Nor would you be able to keep it away from perhaps grieving neighbors who have lost their own children. And so she comes up with a plan. She, she takes a basket. Uh, the, the Hebrew word in this text actually is ark, a word that only occurs two places in the Bible, Noah's ark, Genesis 6, and here. It's a redemptive basket. Just as Noah had waterproofed his ark with bitumen, so this mother applies bitumen to this basket that no water would be able to penetrate and do her child harm. It's not a moment where she is exposing her child or giving him up. This is her strategy for his safety. She doesn't know what will happen, but she knows what would if she didn't do something. So she acts courageously, and she puts this basket with her child in the waters of the river. Now, it may be that she expects this just to float into who knows where and who knows what care, but I think it's more likely that she wants to continue to care for this child and raise him herself. I think that's why she puts it in the reeds, not in the strong current. And I think that's why she posts this child's older sister, Miriam. She's probably about 12 years old on the riverbank, to keep watch, to make sure nothing should happen. Probably, Jacobed would go out and nurse this child every few hours. But it's a risk. It's a risk that's proved by the fact that next what happens is a company of Egyptians and the worst kinds of Egyptians, those in authority, the power brokers who have issued the edict have come now. It's the princess, it's the very daughter of the pharaoh, come to bathe with her maidens, young girls and a maid. And she, unfortunately, sees the child and she calls for it and it is brought to her and she looks in. Moses is crying. In a flash of genius, this courageous 12-year-old, Miriam, steps right up to the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt. And she's, she, I think this is a moment of inception. She sows a thought. She says, Dear Your Highness, would you like me to go fetch for you a Hebrew wet nurse for your new child? See, and the princess says, My new child. I like the sound of that. And she says, yes, which in the Hebrew actually is actually go, which if you haven't read the book of Exodus, you're going to realize is a word freighted with significance. Go. And Miriam goes back and she knows just the wet nurse, her own mother, the mother of this baby who now gets paid to raise her child for three years, a Hebrew child or four would be, would be nursed, and so she does for three years. And at the end of that period, Jacobed brings Moses to the Pharaoh's court, perhaps unwillingly or perhaps willingly. This is the first instance of adoption in the Bible, and a beautiful picture of that. It's also the first instance of boarding school in the Bible. And people would come from far and wide, as far as Euphrates, to educate their children in the Pharaoh's academy. And so Moses, this great leader, finds a rich education in the care of the pharaoh. It's a strange story. There are two interpretations, as I say, that are given to us, and I won't spend much time on them, but they do bookend, and they do ask us to interpret for ourselves. The first interpretation is that of the pharaoh himself. He gives an explanation of what he thinks is going on here, and we see that in chapter 1. We didn't read it, but it's verse 9 and 10. Where he says to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. See, his interpretation is fear. He looks at his circumstances. He sees an overwhelming, unsurmountable power, and he says, we should be afraid. And he acts out of that fear. First... uh, He tries slavery. That doesn't work. Next, he tries conspiracy, trying to work with some of these midwives to expose some of these kids. That does not work. Now, genocide. That's where his fear will lead. The other interpretation at the other end of this passage is the interpretation given to us by his daughter, another Egyptian, one of the princesses. She, when Jochebed comes with Moses three or four years later, will look at the child and give him a name. She'll give him a name that has Egyptian significance because the word, uh, the M-S-H word in, uh, in Egyptian signifies a son, one who is born, very common name. But she will attribute to that name a Hebrew etymology, Moshe, one who has been drawn from the waters. That's an interpretation. Her interpretation is not fear, but it's love. It's love that has drawn her into relationship. She sees this as an experience of relationship, an experience of love that's broken into her life. And she will act on it also, but not in the ways that her father acts. She will act toward adoption. She will embrace a new relationship. But what do you think, dear reader? The narrator says, what's your interpretation?" What do you think is happening in the midst of this crisis? You've got to ask. Now, if you're a Hebrew reader, you're going to be better equipped to answer that question than an Egyptian would be. See, the Egyptians don't see a river in their interpretation. What they see, I would call a pool. They see river standing still. Water just right there. It's just in the context of this pool, they have to make their assessment of what's going on. But the Israelites, see, the Israelites know it's a river. And they have the ability to look upstream and to look downstream. Just very quickly, if you look upstream this river, what do you see? Well, if you've rented the, the book of Genesis, then you know the storyline. I'm going to give it to you in 30 seconds. It begins with peace. It's been destroyed by two human beings, our parents. But God makes a very profound promise, Genesis 3.15. The seed of this woman will crush the head of the serpent. Peace will be restored. That's why when you read the book of Genesis, there are all these genealogies. It's a hunt for the child that will be born. Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? We're looking for the child that will restore peace. That hunt leads to one particular family, a man named Abraham and a woman named Sarah. They have an extraordinary birth story. And it's a child who becomes the father of... Of a nation. Actually, his grandchild uh, will become Jacob, Israel. And Jacob will have 12 sons who will end up in Egypt. And they'll end up in Egypt where there's blessing for them, because in Canaan there's a famine, and they will end up in Egypt where there's blessing for a Pharaoh. The Pharaoh blesses this nation. The promise to Abraham had been you will be the father of a nation that is blessed. And that will bless all the nations. Through this family will come peace to the whole world. And there's a Pharaoh, because of Joseph, who blesses this holy family and who is blessed by it and becomes rich and prosperous in a season of famine. When the Nile's not doing what it should be doing for Egypt. But, you see, the Pharaoh in our story doesn't know that. He should have checked his annals. He could have been rich. He could have been prosperous like... Joseph's Pharaoh was, but he decides instead to act out of fear. And what he fears most is what's going to happen next. If you look downstream, if you look into the future, why well, then you have not the book of Genesis, but the book of Exodus, which we're going to look at more carefully together. But the Israelite, the community, the nation that is shaped by these narrative already knows where it is going. The book of Exodus, as the name suggests, is the book that tells the story of God's people being exited, being taken out of Egypt, slavery. And you know that they are going to be drawn into existence as a nation through the waters of the Red Sea. And if you read the story even farther, as a Christian, you know that this nation will give birth to an extraordinary person. A son of God, born under adversity, through injustice, having to make a detour through Egypt on the way who will be baptized and who will be God's agent of drawing a people through the waters of baptism, a people of peace. So you say, wow, this is not just a pool. This is a river. It's a narrative of God's redemptive work from the beginning of time to the end of time. And if we can get perception of that redemptive narrative, then we can begin to interpret the circumstances of what is immediately happening in front of our eyes. This is about the providence of an all-wise, all-loving creator. Yes, this river flows through crisis. It flows through the murderous floods of the Nile. It flows through death itself. It flows through the cross of Jesus Christ. But it flows to life. It flows to resurrection life. It flows from fear to love. Through relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, and adoption into his royal family. Here's the main point this morning. I even put on a little post-it here to make sure we get it. If you go home with anything, go home with this, not this, but this. God draws you through waters into his love. God draws you through waters into his love. Now, really quickly, I want to race through five things that you don't learn from this text. I mean, that's the one thing you do. There are five things that you don't, and I've got to go through them because this raises so many questions for so many of us. You know, it's like, am I supposed to be a Calvinist here? What's going on? God's providence is real. But here's what this text doesn't teach us about God's providence. Five things, real fast. The first is, we don't learn that God wills harm. We don't learn that here. No Israelite reading this text would understand that God is the one who is harming people in this passage. Absolutely not. It's very clear that it's the Pharaoh and his fear that are doing the the damage. In fact, sometimes you and I refer to natural disasters like what's happening right now in Japan as acts of God. And we should be very careful with that kind of language. In fact, the river is an agent of redemption in this story. And we're going to see that all the way through the book of Exodus. We're going to see that creation itself, remember the plagues, is revolting against the injustice of uh, the brokenness and the evil of this day. So the Apostle Paul would say all creation is yearning, it's moaning to revert to the peace that it knew in Genesis chapter 1. No, God does not will harm. The second thing we, we don't learn from this text, we don't learn that providence always shields us, from pain. All of the characters in this story are suffering. They're victims of something, one way or another, all of them. The people, in fact, who are suffering the most are the blessed people, are the redemptive people. So we dare not think that if we have God in our lives, if we believe in God, that we will somehow be shielded from suffering. That's just not the case. But what we can know is that God can always turn pain, turn suffering into redemption. Always. There is no pitch that life can send at you that God can't hit out of the park into everlasting life. Third, we don't learn that providence makes people passive. This is not determinism. And there's no one in the story that is not active and engaged. In fact, the most active people are the people whose lives are aligning with the providential flow of God's hand. Right? These women... Uh, one commentator says, it's the courage of women that is the beginning of liberation. And it's true here. The ones who have courage are these women who step forward. They're insurrectionists. They represent the revolt, the revolution of the kingdom under the pharaoh's nose. No, they're activists. We don't learn that providence makes people passive. The fourth thing we don't learn is that our actions are ultimately decisive. And here you go, darn, you know, it's not about me, ultimately. No. Your actions are meaningful, but only as a response to God's work of grace in your life. You see, the, the, real, the real current, the real force of this story comes from God. That's the mystery of it. That's what makes it such an interesting and intriguing story, is it's riddled with ironies and surprises and turns and twists. And pretty soon the Israelites says, there's got to be God doing this. It's just got to be God. It just couldn't happen in any other way. I mean, the object of death becomes the object of life. You know, the Pharaoh's daughter becomes the source of his demise. I mean, you could just count. There are a dozen ironies here. And it draws your attention to the work of God. He is the one who is moving through history to bless and to redeem, to draw us into love and relationship with Jesus Christ. Always at work. Fifth, thing we don't learn from this passage is this. We don't learn that we can articulate the specific meaning of God's providence in our lives. We don't learn that. And there are some things that have happened to you or will happen to you that you'll never know what it means until eternity. And I want to just say here, we got to be very, very careful with the suffering of other people. There's so often a well-intentioned desire to come alongside somebody who's suffering and help them understand it. They need your presence. They need you to move into their lives, but they do not need your interpretation. They need you to be quiet, closer and quieter. This is the lesson of the book of Job. Job is a whole book that teaches us that God is providentially involved in our lives, but it also teaches us how unhelpful our counselors are at that time. Job says, God is doing great things, unsearchable things, but you're just not helpful to me. I know that my Redeemer lives, though. I know that in the midst of this, my attention is rightly drawn to Jesus Christ, who is redeeming me and this set of circumstances. What we do learn, though, is that God draws you through waters into his love. Sometimes we can't answer the philosophical questions. This is what I love about St. Paul. Did you know that St. Paul gets to go to Athens? He gets to go to the great Greek academy. It's the epicenter of philosophy in the history of humankind, right? The school of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And, And the Apostle Paul, the great rabbi, Saul of Tarsus, gets to step on the tarmac and speak and address the philosophers. And he goes, you know what? I just want to set your philosophy aside for a moment. And I want to talk about something that's more important to you, and that's your spirituality, Because as I'm walking into your city, I see all these monuments. And I saw one that says, to an unknown God. And I'm here to tell you the name of that God. It's Jesus Christ. He he says, God has allotted the times of our existence and the boundaries of the places where we would live. See, God has set this up. And he tells them why. So that, not that our questions get answered, so that we would search for God. And perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed, he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting one of their poets. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offsprings. Yes, we Greek Athenians are his offspring. He says, you can ask all the questions. You can give me all the answers that you want. I'm just here to tell you that you live and move and have your being. In a God who loves you, who will take every circumstance of your life, and no matter how wicked or evil or distressing it is, and turn it around to his redemptive purposes. I'm just telling you, that's the thing you got to know. It's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus Christ. A river is carrying you. It's a river of God's providence that runs through history. But it's a personal river as well that runs through every circumstance of your life. And what God is saying to us in it is, you are mine. Not the circumstances. They don't define you. I and my love defines you. You belong to me. You're mine. Let me finish up by suggesting what you might do about this. Just give you some practical suggestions. I want to suggest that our role model in this passage ought to come from verse 4. It's Moses' sister about 12 years old, Miriam. Verse 4 tells us his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. That word stood is not the Hebrew word for just, you know, standing and being erect. It's a stronger word. It means stationed herself. She locates herself strategically so that she can see what would happen to him. See, she, she expects, she doesn't know what, but she expects something good will happen here. She's got her eyes wide open for the redemption of God in this moment. She's got kind of an optimistic preset. She's hopeful, so she's looking. She wants to see what it will be. And I suggest that that's what God is calling you and me to, to be attentive to where Jesus Christ shows up in the places that are hardest to understand. As I've been talking this morning, maybe the Spirit of God has put something in your mind, a set of circumstances that you haven't known what to do with. Maybe it's something very recent, something very fresh. Maybe something that happened long ago and you've kind of thought, I'm just better off not thinking about it. But now you realize, you know, and if I could see how Jesus was at work there, I would be much better off. Maybe it's a pattern in your life where you just get the suspicion that maybe it's about something more. I want you to think about that one area, that one circumstance. Let God put it on your mind and on your heart. And then what I want to do is ask you to be like Miriam and to study it a little bit. To look for Jesus Christ's presence. great model that, for that is Augustine, rising from the soils of North Africa, an object of our prayers these days. Augustine in the fourth century was a great interpreter, like Miriam. He looked at the decline of the Roman Empire, and, and when everybody well saying, this is the end of civilization. It's imploding right now. Um, Augustine said, no, I don't think so. I think I see God at work in this. And Augustine then could look at his own life. He didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ until he was 32 years old. And he looks back on the hedonism and the rebellion and the brokenness of his life, all the crises and moments where he's strayed far away. And he says, You know, at every point I could see you, God, were calling me. This great book called The Confessions is addressed to God, saying, I see how you are at work. It goes all the way back to his first cry, his infancy. And this is what he writes in, in Confessions. He says, You were always present angry and merciful at once, strewing the pangs of bitterness over all my lawless pleasures to lead me on to look for others, other pleasures, unallied with pain. You meant me to find them nowhere but in yourself, O Lord. See, I see how he's been drawing me. So I want to suggest to you that you become kind of a spiritual autobiographer, and that this week you take a few moments and a piece of paper, half sheet if that's all you can tolerate, and, and take that, that set of circumstances and, and work at a, an interpretation. And here's some questions to help you with that. Four questions. How can this experience help me know Jesus Christ better? How can this experience help me know Jesus Christ better? Number two, what in this is pushing me towards Fear. Number three, what in this is drawing me towards love? And finally, how might I be stronger? Because this happened. What if we were people who learned that every circumstance could become a redemptive moment? That in every circumstance, Jesus Christ is there drawing us further to become a royal people. A people who are fearless because we can engage in places of pain in our own lives and the lives of other people knowing that God is drawing us all into his grace and love. Imagine our courage. I want to close this morning with the words that Tony Blair read, the closing words of the Bridge of San Luis Rey, which point me to love, specifically to the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thornton Wilder's character says this, but soon we shall die and all memory of those five from the bridge will have left the earth, and we ourselves shall be loved for a while and forgotten by other people. But the love will have been enough, and all those impulses of love return to the love that made them. Even memory is not necessary for love. There's a land of the living and a land of the dead and the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's so much happening right now that we don't understand. But we confess that Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. And we invite you to open up our eyes and to help us, help our unbelief, help us to see your love at work in our lives and to reach out our hands. That you might pull us through these waters and someday out of these waters because we are yours Amen For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.